Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 23rd, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 45, verses 1 to 25. As his vision of the new temple continues, Ezekiel is shown the part of the land that will be set apart for the Lord, for the priests and the Levites, and for the prince, before Ezekiel hears about the major worship festivals for the people of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be back on with you, Tim. As we get started this morning, I've got a quote here from Dr. Horace Hummel in his commentary on this part of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48. I've shared this with several guests now, and I'm curious your thoughts. He writes, from almost any perspective, these chapters are among the most formidable and challenging in the entire Bible. If that is the case, Pastor Appled, how should we approach these chapters in a helpful way so that we can use them as Christians? Oh, I wonder what he means by that. It would be interesting. Uh, my father actually had uh, Professor Hummel at uh, St. Louis, and he always, <laughs> you know, I would ask him, especially once I got to seminary, what, who are your favorite professors? And I knew uh, Professor Hummel from his writings. And I said, did you like Dr. Hummel? And he said, no, no one understood what he was ever saying. <laughs> or that, you know, that was what my dad said. Anyways, um, what he must mean is that the, that the vision here of this temple is there's all kinds of things, there's details that are hard to, um, they're hard to make sense of because they don't, you look for a correspondence in the New Testament, right? You look for, okay, so we've got these specific areas that we're going to talk about today, a land that's like 20,000 cubits long, you would think, oh, this will be easy. We'll just look for where that number, 20,000 cubits, comes up in the New Testament. The trouble is, it doesn't. And so you're left kind of saying, well, okay, so how am I supposed to interpret this as being fulfilled in Christ and in the, the life of the church? It must not be um, a literalistic land that's being described. And so that's where, you know, it's it gets a little bit challenging. So, I mean, with those challenges in mind, and I'm sure that's what Dr. Hummel had in mind were those types of issues. And, and no doubt if, if Dr. Hummel found it formidable and challenging, then, then certainly it's the same for me, I know. So with those challenges in mind, how, how do you approach them when you can't find the number 20,000 cubits elsewhere in the scriptures? When, when there are these details that we're not entirely sure what to do with, how do you approach them as a Christian? Well, I think, I think that we're not um, totally, uh, we're not in totally uncharted territories, right? So we're, what we're talking about in chapters 40 to 48 is, I think this is temple theology, right? Um, so I think that as we're reading about this, what, what Ezekiel sees, what the Lord shows him as this um, new temple, this what I'm going to call an idyllic temple. Um, I think that a lot of the the teaching, you know, the functions of the temple that we know from other other passages can inform us here. And uh, I kind of the way that I take it, Tim, is that uh, what 
Ezekiel is seeing is here is the temple in all of its, maybe it's, it was never um, actually going to, you know, meet these dimensions, but the dimensions are meant to convey a certain ideal form of the temple. And that helps us kind of orient ourselves. We're not looking for the literal fulfillment of these things, but a function, where, where are the functions of this fulfilled in Christ? How is he the new temple and how, how do chapters 40 to 48, how do they teach us to think about the, the work, the person and the work of Jesus Christ when he comes and then the life of the church after his ascension? So in chapter 45, well, I guess just in terms of that broader context, chapters 40 through 48, what has Ezekiel seen so far? What's he going to see in chapter 45 and how do those fit together? Yeah, what he's seen so far is, is, um, details of the actual temple building. So we know the book of Ezekiel, this is, we're kind of covering some old ground here, but it's always good to do that, get our um, setting right. Uh, Ezekiel prophesies during the exile, right? And so the people are um, in Babylon, and what happened to the temple in Jerusalem is that it got ripped down, and Nebuchadnezzar burned it down. So that first temple, the Solomonic temple that King Solomon built, is in ruins, and so now Ezekiel is seeing, all right, when we come back from exile, the temple needs to be rebuilt, right? And so here is a idyllic, again, that's the word that I'm using. I don't, if you've got a better one, I'm happy to use a, a different word. But um, what would be the ideal form of the temple? And so what he's seen so far in the, this section of his prophecy is really the details of the building itself. And now we're expanding that to um, the land. And then there's going to be a little bit more about a, a particular person or an office um, that's called the prince. And what, what's his role in this reformed community, the new Israel? One of the things that we encounter in this text that I think is new <clears throat> is that thought of the land being apportioned. And as the this section continues, we're going to find out more in later chapters about how the rest of the land of Israel is apportioned. And maybe as, as you were talking, that's something I haven't really thought a ton about, is how is the temple as a building related to the land of Israel as a whole? Not only is we're going to see the land that it actually sits on in today's text, but the land of Israel as a whole. How do those two things go together, temple and land? Uh, well, the temple is on the land. No, um, but <laughs> definitely the the per okay, so I live in Paducah, Kentucky, and in Paducah we had, um, it's not really functioning too much anymore, but there was a uranium enrichment facility here. And I use this example um, when I teach on the temple, um, because God's holiness, the holy dwelling of the Lord is like, um, it's like a nuclear, uh, a nuclear reactor, okay? And it's, it's powerful, but it's powerful both for good, but it can, it can also be powerful in judgment. Right. And so the purpose of the temple, God um, dwells among his people. The Holy Lord takes up residence with his people and his holiness then is meant to pervade out from the um, from the temple itself through the whole land. OK, so if you think of a nuclear reactor, when it's when there's a spill um, that the radioactivity spills out everywhere and it's bad. Right. Ba lots of bad stuff. Um, but. The holiness is meant to overflow um, throughout the whole land. 
So the concern for um, the land and the land having, you know, being allotted out properly um, is the what the um, it's setting the stage for this holiness of God to fill the whole the whole land and not just be restricted to the holy place or the most holy place. It's meant God's holiness wants to go out into the whole world. And we've talked a little bit about this previously, that in order for that to happen, for God's holiness to go out, he's got to make it go out so that the nuclear disaster doesn't happen. He has to distribute it in such a way such that it won't consume us in our unholiness, but rather will be to our benefit. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that as, as we go through our study today, but that's been a theme that we've seen already. And I think as we, as we again, as we see the, the land begin to, to come up here in Ezekiel, that's going to come through even stronger today. Yeah, let's, uh, we'll, we'll use this word throughout, but it's a good one just to put in our people's uh, ears here. That how do you have the, the beneficial access to God's holiness? And so much of the law, um, in terms of the, the restrictions of the priests and who can go where and what to eat and what, and, you know, we read that and it just seems like lots of details, but it's good to keep that big picture in mind. God wants to give beneficial access to his holiness so that people don't, um, you know, so that you don't go into the nuclear reactor without the right suit on, the hazmat suit, and you just grab the uranium and your hand melts off. You know, that's right. that's not going to be good. Right, right. So let's let's take a look at Ezekiel 45. Let's start digging in here and see how the Lord works to give beneficial access to his holiness through the land and the other things mentioned in this chapter. So we're picking up in verse 1. When you allot the land as an inheritance, you shall set apart for the Lord a portion of the land as a holy district, 25,000 cubits long and 20,000 cubits broad. It shall be holy throughout its whole extent. Of this, a square plot of 500 by 500 cubits shall be for the sanctuary, with 50 cubits for an open space around it. And from this measured district, you shall measure off a section 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 broad, in which shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be the holy portion of the land. It shall be for the priests who minister in the sanctuary and approach the Lord to minister to him. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. Another section, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 cubits broad, shall be for the Levites who minister at the temple as their possession for cities to live in. Alongside the portion set apart as the holy district, you shall assign for the property of the city an area 5,000 cubits broad and 25,000 cubits long. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. And to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district and the property of the city, alongside the holy district and the property of the city, on the west and on the east, corresponding in length to one of the tribal portions, and extending from the western to the eastern boundary of the land. It is to be his property in Israel. And my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. Thus says the Lord God, Enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression, and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. You shall have just balances, a just ephah, and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure, the bath containing one-tenth of a homer, and the ephah one-tenth of a homer. The homer shall be the standard measure. The shekel shall be twenty geras, twenty shekels, plus twenty-five shekels, plus fifteen shekels, shall be your mina. 
This is the offering that you shall make. One-sixth of an ephah from each homer of wheat, and one-sixth of an ephah from each homer of barley, and as a fixed portion of oil measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath from each core. The core, like the homer, contains ten baths. And one sheep from every flock of two hundred, from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, and peace offerings, to make atonement for them, declares the Lord God. All the people of the land shall be obliged to give this offering to the prince in Israel. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings, at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings, to make atonement on behalf of the peop- of the house of Israel. Right. We'll pause there. That takes us through verse 17 of the text. So a couple of different things going on in that section, but it's hard to know exactly where to break it. Let's start with this matter of yep. allotting the land as an inheritance. First, just kind of help us get a picture of about what sort of, and again, I, we know we're not going to build this. We're not actually looking for this land to set apart. But in terms of the area that is described, help us to picture what, what Ezekiel's seeing here. Yeah, the land, so it's a rectangular portion of land, and uh, when you work out the math, a cubit is about um, 18 inches, one and a half feet. So you do your multiplication, and uh, you come out with, um, what did that come out to be? It's about seven miles by six miles, okay? And if that's still not uh, registering in people's mind, I I looked up on uh, the internet here, so uh, maybe some of our farmers can correct us if I get this wrong. Um, but uh, the way that it comes out in acres, if you want it in acres, is uh, almost 26,000 acres. So it's a, it's a big, uh, big thing. The city of Paducah, where I live, is about 21 square miles. So it's twice as big as the city of Paducah. Now, uh, if that doesn't help our listeners, maybe they've never been to Paducah. Paducah is a, is a mid-sized city. It's not big. It's not huge, but it's not small. Um, we have a mall. We just don't have a target. <laughs> All right. Um, so, so forty-two square miles, I guess, Tim. Maybe that. Maybe that's uh, can put this in perspective. All right. Okay. So that and that's probably a town that is big enough to have a target. If this was gonna. Oh yeah, okay. definitely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are some of the features then of this this to- total area? Twenty-five thousand cubits long, twenty thousand cubits broad. Again, that about forty-two square miles. What we're talking about. What are some of the features, the divisions that exist within that space? Yeah, so if you picture yourself a rectangle, um, the rectangle is split in half, and half of it is for the priests, and half of it is for the Levites. And in the priestly half is where the actual, where the temple is going to go. So you heard the temple called there the sanctuary, um, or the most holy place. These are all um, different. There's probably a little bit of difference in terms of, you know, the most holy place refers specifically to the Holy of Holies. Um, The sanctuary may be the, both the most holy place and the holy place. Um, the temple, you know, would include the precinct around there, the courts around the temple. But in any case, uh, what's just being described here is the temple is going to be in the priestly half of this rectangle. And uh, the priests then are going to live all around the temple. And I think it's, it's worth pointing out that the the people of Israel all received their inheritance, just like they did in the book of Joshua. When they came into the land, it was allotted out to the tribes. Um, and here you have the Lord. He has a, an inheritance with his people. Um, I think that's that's a something that we don't want to jump over because there is something um, 
sort of surprising in that, right? That God also has an inheritance on earth. And I think this is um, what I called earlier, this is part of the temple theology in the Bible, that God wants to dwell with his people, right? He doesn't want there to be this um, gulf between him and his people. So he's in heaven, they're on earth, and he just is sort of happy with you know, staying far away from those dirty people. Um, no, he actually wants to dwell with his people. And so he shares in their inheritance. He has land with them. Okay. But then he also, this is part of his grace, right? He shares his inheritance with his priests. And so they are co-heirs. This is a, a good New Testament term that we're kind of putting back in there. But the priests inherit with the Lord and the Levites inherit with the Lord. Well, and, and even with, okay, so a couple of thoughts. Just the fact that the Lord gets part of the inheritance. Thinking back through the to the book of Joshua, where the land was allotted as an inheritance. And, and my understanding there is that the whole land belongs to the Lord. And that's really, if when you think through some of the regulations, say, in the book of Leviticus about inheritance and land staying within families, that was part of it, was that the whole land belongs to the Lord. Here that the Lord actually like gets his own spot, if you will, I think yeah. seems like a uh, an escalation of that idea that it's not just yes the Lord sort of there, but here he is right here in this this spot, this temple. That's where his inheritance is. That's where you're going to access his holiness in a beneficial way. I mean, it it just seems like a like there's an I guess escalation is the only word I can think to use. An escalation from the way the land was allotted in the book of Joshua to what's happening here in Ezekiel and the Lord's temple, his sanctuary being right there among his priests. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right on. If you think of there's a pro, if you don't want to use the word escalation, there is a progression um, right throughout the Old Testament. There is an intensification of God dwelling with His people. That's going to um, reach into the New Testament, where you have these great passages that we'll hear at Christmas time. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So, um, when the people were going about in tents in the wilderness, the Lord was with them in a tent in the tabernacle. When they came into the land and they were established in cities and in houses, eventually, now God didn't tell them, build me a temple, but they build him a temple and he dwells with them in a temple. And um, then that is all um, progressing towards a fuller dwelling with his people. So they dwell in bodies and he is going to take on a human body so that he can dwell among us in this most um, close way, right? This most intimate way. In, in terms of the, the idea of the holiness of God coming to us in a beneficial way, one of the features that's given here that maybe is easy to, to skip over is that that square plot of 500 by 500 cubits for the sanctuary has a space of 50 cubits all around it that's open space. That seems to me like there's a like there's a boundary to the Lord's holiness that that you don't just walk right up to the temple and touch it. <laughs> you you yeah. need to, to observe your you know what the, keep the keep the space in other words. Yeah, no, I think that's right on. So we um the neighborhood that I live in is a it's a, a cul-de-sac. It's really a dead end street. And so when we want to go for a walk with my family, we we go to the neighborhood um, next to us, which there's some really nice lawns right there. And I'm always a little concerned that my kids are just gonna. Cause I've got five little kids. Tim and I talk about this between you know during the breaks. But you know 
if they are just run around without any attention to where they are, you know, that sidewalk actually helps them. It has a boundary. Hey, don't just run into this person's yard. Now, inevitably they do. And it's okay because it's just grass, right? It's just a lawn. But when we're talking about holy things, um, to treat a holy thing as if it were common, to treat God as if he were common and his space as if it was common space. Yeah, you know, it doesn't really matter whether I walk on God's lawn or not. Um, you actually, uh, you run the risk of desecrating um, what is holy. And then instead of beneficial access, you're a trespasser. So I think you're right. There's this, there's this boundary space so that the people, you know, as you're coming, um, you, you recognize I'm leaving the priestly district and I'm coming into God's holy place. Um, and, and our churches are set up this way. Oftentimes you have the narthex, which, you know, um, depending on what your narthex looks like, we have a very small narthex at my congregation, but it's meant to be the place where you recognize, all right, I'm, there's a transition here. I'm going from the common into the, the holy, and I'm going to not just knock the dirt off my feet, so to speak, but I'm also going to prepare my heart, prepare my mind. Um, to have access to the Lord. Well, and then from the narthex then into the sometimes called the sanctuary or the nave, the, the main yeah. area where people sit, and then from there into the chancel. Yeah, you can see this. Um, this It's not that we have um, prescriptions in the New Testament for how the churches should be built. In the Old Testament, right, the tabernacle is very, God is very specific about the spaces and the boundaries and everything. But um, when we build churches, we look to the Old Testament and say, look, there was a reason for these things. And that is an important, that's still part of our worship. And so the, yeah, the, the church building has different um, zones. And as you get closer and closer to the altar, um, which is where you have access to Christ's body and blood, um, there is this um, kind of, uh, intensification of holy place, holy space, and being cognizant of that helps us as worshipers to come into his presence in repentance, in faith. That's the crucial thing, right? Um, but it also um, is helpful to recognize, hey, I'm going, I'm entering closer and closer to the Lord. I mean, I, I think I was reminded as you're talking there of, of Luther in the small catechism at the very last part of the sacrament of the altar about what does it mean to receive the sacrament worthily or how do you come to the body and blood of Jesus you know there's fasting and bodily preparation that's great so these these ways that we have of communicating by our church building that we're coming closer to the Lord's presence to his holiness that's great for outward preparation but what really matters is the faith that would come to the Lord's table to receive his presence there as you said in repentance trusting that it is the body and blood of Jesus to give us that that holiness of God in a beneficial way, not one that's that's to our harm. Help, maybe just I'm, I feel like there's a lot of threads that are kind of running loose right now. We've been talking about this Old Testament, well, the Old Testament temple theology, what Ezekiel's saying, and then into the New Testament Christian worship. Help us to to kind of tie some of those threads together in terms of accessing God's holiness in the beneficial way. Yeah, you're right. We're just uh, this is how I like to talk about things. Tim. we just throw it all out there and, you know, it, it kind of sticks together. But um, if you're thinking, OK, tabernacle, temple, the incarnation of Jesus, how, what what ties those things together? Well, what ties them together is that God dwells with his people 
and he provides the atonement for their sins so that that dwelling um, God with us can give us um, his grace. Okay, so in the Old Testament, he sets up the meeting time, he sets up the meeting place, and he also says, here is how the meeting is going to go. When I meet with you, here are the sacrifices to offer. And this is all grace, right? So the people have to do it, and they have to sacrifice the animals. But because it, was, it wasn't like Moses said, well, Aaron, what should we do, man? How are we going to access God in a beneficial way? What do you think? And Aaron was like, well, let's, you know, let's kill these animals and pour the blood on the ground. God arranged it um, so that his people, he gave them access to himself, all right? So Old Testament, these things prefigure and prepare the way so that when Jesus comes and he says things like, you know, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I will raise it on the third day, um, and when he talks about making atonement, that his blood, um, that, you know, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is sacrificially poured out to make atonement um, for sins. People can connect. They can say, yes, this is, what the this is what the tabernacle always looked forward to. This is what the temple always looked forward to. This is what the priesthood was meant to accomplish. It was always meant to foreshadow um, the reality of Jesus. All right. So it all goes towards Christ. And once Christ comes, now, in the life of the church, um, these things continue to be applied to us. So his sacrifice, once and for all, in the language of Hebrews, completed, is now applied to us through the, the means of grace or through the, the word and the sacraments. Um, and so when we talk about New Testament worship, Old Testament worship, there is so much um, connection, there is so much overlap, that even though we don't have... Uh, you know, thank God we no longer have the animal sacrifices. We have something better. Um, we still have uh, the same, um, what's, I don't want to say concepts. We have the reality right. um, of what these things always foreshadowed. Right. The shadow in the Old Testament has gone because the reality has come in Christ. And that, yeah. uh, thank you for tying those together. And we're going to pick up more of Ezekiel chapter 45 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. Talking with Pastor David Apple today. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, November 23rd. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 45, verses 1 to 25 with Pastor David Appold. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, prior to the break, we're talking about, again, the beneficial access to God's holiness. The Lord's temple in Ezekiel's vision is located within the land that is given to the priests. And then next to that are the Levites. And we're going to see elsewhere in this section, again, how the rest of the land gets apportioned to the other tribes. You mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to come back to it, that 
the Lord dwells among his priests. How does that come into the New Testament? How does that come into us? Is I mean, should we equate priests with pastors? I don't think that's what you said, and I don't think that's what it means, but help us to make that connection. Yeah, apparently God, uh, you know, he has a gated community. He only wants to be <laughs> neighbors with the priests and the Levites. Um, he So in the if you can remember back to the tabernacle, the, the tabernacle was in the center of the, the camp of Israel, right? And so he dwelt, the Lord dwelt amongst his people, all of his people. But um, due to it being, you know, an earthly uh, approximation of a heavenly reality, right? The, that meant that there were some tribes that were closer than other tribes, okay? And uh, this also is true here in Ezekiel's vision. If God has a physical dwelling place among his people, that's going to mean that he's going to have some who he's closer, quote-unquote, closer to than others, right? Now, in the New Testament, this is where the... Um, the, the power of the Spirit really shines through. So um, when Christ comes, he makes all of us priests, right? The Spirit is given to all the baptized, and uh, there's no longer some of these gradations that there used to be. So in the Old Testament, there was, a, you could access, you could get, you could only get so close depending on who you were. And one of those divisions was if you were a Levite, you could get pretty close. If you were a priest, you could get really close. If you were the high priest, you could get the closest, right? You could actually go into the most holy place once a year. So special favor to the high priest. And uh, that was a dangerous mission for him to go in there. But um, now in the New Testament, the, the spirit is given to all of God's people in full measure. And so when the New Testament talks about the priesthood, um, it talks about it in terms of all of God's people being priests. And so that, yes, the equation should not be uh, Old Testament priests equal New Testament pastors. God dwells closest to the pastors. And then, yeah, you know, maybe he can tolerate those, um, those lay people if he really has to. No, the spirit dwells in all of us. And the whole church is called um, the temple of God, the temple of the living God. I think this example that Ezekiel's got here of what he's seeing and how the land is divided, and you still have that Old Testament reality in place, is, is just a reminder that Ezekiel is seeing something. He's looking into the future. He's seeing realities that are true in Christ for the church, but he's being shown it in an Old Testament frame of mind. And so I, I find it helpful to have that explanation so that we would understand this correctly as Christians. What are some of those places in the New Testament that, that describe all Christians as priests of God? And, and what does that mean for all Christians to be priests of God? Yeah, I think the classic passage is going to be 1 Peter 2, right, where you have um, the descript you have the term um, royal priesthood that that's, comes into Lutheran teaching, and not just Lutheran, but into Christian teaching, um, being referred to all of God's people, right? They are all, you are all together a royal priesthood, a holy nation, um, a people set apart by God for his, for his possession. What it means is that um, all of the, the church, the whole church is meant to bring and offer themselves as in sacrifice, right? The, this is kind of the, the unique thing of a priest is that priests function as those who offer a sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, that included um, 
animal sacrifices that included grain offerings, um, wine offerings, there's oil, there's all kinds of physical things being offered. Um, when St. Paul will talk about the offerings of the Christian, um, he talks about in Romans 12, there's this wonderful passage about presenting your whole life as a living sacrifice. So what is offered in the New Testament um, is ourselves. And the reason that, it, that we are offered, um, the function of our offerings is no longer to make atonement, since Christ has made atonement, but our life is an offering of thanksgiving and praise to God. So um, we praise the Lord, you know, maybe most um, clearly in our worship, in the singing of his praises, right, in the, the liturgy and the hymns and the psalms, all of these things, um, but then also in the activity of our lives, a life of obedience, a life of service and love for the Lord and our neighbor. This is how the priesthood functions in the New Testament. As the text continues, we meet yet again the, I don't know, I hesitate to call him a character, but it, this figure in the this part of Ezekiel who is the prince. We met him in chapter 44 in this vision, and he comes back in this chapter and, and later in this section as well. Who is this prince? Remind us of that as we begin to see what he does here in chapter 45. Yeah, um, earlier in Ezekiel's prophecy, he talked about um, he in chapter 34, there's the great passage about the Lord being the shepherd who will seek out his people. And then he talks about the um, David, a new David will come and be the prince over his people. So I take this, the prince to be, a this is a Christological prophecy. The prince is a, a type of Christ. Okay. Um, now what he's doing in chapter 45, and I think he didn't the prince come up in 44 also? He did. Yeah. Yeah. 44 yeah. is the first place he comes up in this section of Ezekiel. So because this section of Ezekiel is especially um, focused on the temple and the worship that's conducted in the temple, the prince has a leading function in the worship of, uh, of this temple. Now, he's not a priest. He's not doing what the priests do. So um, again, in Jesus, these different offices kind of merge together into the one the one Christ. But here you see the prince, um, this prophecy of, of a, a prince, a Christ who would come. He is the, um, he is furnishing, I think is the language that the English translations use here. He's providing the sacrifices that the priests then offer up to God. Mm -hmm. And you can think of Christ being the one who leads us in worship, right? He brings us um, to the Father and by faith, um, we come into the Father's presence through the Son in the Spirit and receive his blessing. Um, that's how I would kind of tie these things together. Uh, the The prince is not a priest, <laughs> as you said, and there are distinctions between the prince and the priests in this section, and yet there are those places where the prince starts to act like a priest or do some things that you would think the priest ought to be doing. And so again, I think the prince figure here in this section of Ezekiel is another one of those places where Ezekiel is is starting to see Christ, but he's still seeing these things in Old Testament realities, but that are starting to like push the boundaries, I guess, that intensification, that escalation, pointing toward who Christ is going to be, where these two roles of, of king and priest do come together in Christ. The prince starts to be that figure. Here, here in this section, and, and I want to come back to the measurements, but since you brought it up, you know, the, the prince serves as almost like a, 
I was trying to think of the right word, maybe a patron of sorts for the worship of the temple, where it's like he receives the offerings from the people, and then he takes those offerings and uses them for the right worship of God. That that seems to be the way that the the direction works, which I think fits what you're talking about, and I'm not going to get the prepositions right now. How did you say it? Through the... We come to the Father, through, through the Son, in the Spirit. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you could probably move those prepositions around. The, the Trinitarian stuff is, um, it, the, you know, there's lots of, um, lots of overlap, right? They dwell, they're mutual indwelling. But um, for our purposes here, think of how we were talking before. The, the Lord takes up space among his people. He um, has an inheritance. He takes up land so that his holiness can spread out into the whole land. Well, now we have kind of the, um, what's the right term, the inverse of that. The whole land, um, the produce of the land comes and the worship of the people comes back to the Lord. But it comes to, you can't just have everybody showing up with, um, you know, with all their offerings. Otherwise, it would be chaotic. It would be a mess. And so it is funneled um, through the prince. And uh, who knows what kind of dignitaries he would need here to keep all of these things, you know, to keep track of, you know, the... Um, you know, the different animals and the different grains and everything. But the point is the through the prince, um, the offerings are um, appropriately brought. They're properly brought. What God has given for his people to do um, is being accomplished. And the prince is seeing to it that everything is done in the right way. Um, he's the, the worship. He might not be the one off making the offerings and sacrificing them. That's the priesthood. Um, but he is providing them. And there are times in Israel's history in the Old Testament where you get mention of, um, I'm thinking of the dedication of the temple. Solomon provides for these all of these, and the numbers are staggering, the number of animals that are sacrificed and the, um, the amount of grain and wine that's being brought in worship. Um, the king sees to it out of his own um, his own back pockets, so to speak. He's he's paying for, he, he's making the sacrifices on behalf of his people. Right. I think you see something similar with the reforms that happened during the days of Hezekiah and the yep. days of yep. Josiah as well. Those those faithful kings of Israel do something similar. And what's, what's striking to me about, again, the way that it works here in Ezekiel, and I think it connects to those other spots as well, is how the, you know, the people are bringing these offerings to the prince and then the prince is making sure that the right worship happens. And so it's it's like the, the offerings are going ultimately to the Lord, but then the Lord turns those offerings around and uses them for the benefit of the people. Because the, you know, all these offerings end up being a part of that whole system of the sacrifice and making atonement so that the, the holiness of God can be accessed in a beneficial way. And so the gifts that come to God, he turns right around and gives back to his people in, in the even a more beneficial way than than when they gave them to him in the first place. Yeah, at the end of verse 17, it's all of this is done. He shall provide all of these offerings that are mentioned. And here's the purpose, to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. And uh, that word atonement is very rich, right? It's very broad. Um, one of the ways that I like to, you can picture it here, atonement atonements are things that cover. So the people, the house of Israel is covered so that when they come into the Lord's presence, they're not coming um, naked, right? They're, they're clothed, they're properly covered over, and they can stand before the Lord without shame, without guilt. 
um, and receive his receive his blessing. In the middle of that section, where the prince gets introduced, and, and he gets some of the land as well, that's part of the prince in this section. And then there, well, there's there's a couple of things that we kind of skipped over to to follow that train of thought. One is that the prince that is being uh, talked about here in Ezekiel chapter 45 is better than the princes that Israel currently has. And so there, I mean, there's I think a, a connection to what you brought up with Ezekiel chapter 34. How you have the on the one hand the condemnation of the current leaders of Israel, and now in this you know new temple, the idyllic idyllic temple, as you you said earlier, those other princes, those other leaders, they're being done away with, and mm-hmm. in their in their place is just this one prince who is completely faithful in the way that he carries out his duties. Yeah, and the focus there is on um, what we might call economic. There's an economic um, he has an economic function or economic duties. Um, he's told the prince is supposed to execute justice and righteousness, right? And so the con- there's a just a couple of verses, um, you know, enough, you princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression and execute justice and righteousness. And then, okay, well, what kind? What do we mean by that? Um, the prince is seeing to it that the measurements are actually fair and balanced, right? That the measurements are, nobody is cheating his neighbor um, with a weighted scales or um, nobody is stealing and there's nothing underhanded going on. And so the prince benefits the people, not just in worship um, with the atonement, but he also um, is seeing to the the social, uh, what economic life, um, these things need to be um, overseen by the prince so that the people can dwell together in harmony and not in um, disorder. How how do those two things go together? The right worship of God, and then the you know, I guess here it's very economic in nature, but the just the rest of of life as a Christian. How do those two things go together? Yeah, the um, I think one way to to think about it, the holiness. You can go at it from a holiness, and um, in a in a lot of ways, the language of holiness and righteousness, they're not exactly synonymous, but they're, they're very much overlapping each other, right? So um, the holiness of the Lord um, that is communicated to his people then changes, it affects them in such a way that they are holy towards in all of their, in all of their life, right? Or the righteousness of the Lord um, is meant to then become the righteousness of his people. They are to live in a righteous way, in a holy way. And uh, you can think in the in kind of New Testament terms, or in maybe terms that are familiar to us, anyways. Um, God justifies us by grace through faith, right? So He declares us righteous, and having declared us righteous, we are then um, made. We are in the process of being sanctified, and that sanctification of our lives is uh, results in all of our actions, right? All of our activities. We do, um, there actually is a transformation that's begun. Now it's partial, it's incomplete in this life. We are fully justified and at the same time, we're still sinners. Um, But what Ezekiel is seeing is kind of the end goal, right? Um, When, if, if there was complete and total sanctification, then nobody would even try to use weighted scales, right? The prince wouldn't have to say, hey, let me check on you and see are you are you actually cheating your neighbor? You know, are you just are you being greedy? Well, if the heart of the people, if they've gotten a new heart, 
that desire is not even present. Now, the new heart language was a part of Ezekiel earlier in, in chapter 36, and I think in another spot too. The The talk of, of the various measures combined with the talk of right worship reminds me of particularly the prophet Amos, although I'm sure it's in other minor prophets as well, that you have this, this situation throughout Israel's history where they think that as long as they're going through the motions of worship, that they can get away with whatever they want during the rest of the week. And it does seem that, that you know, having uh, fraudulent measurements is part of that. And I, I can't yeah. recall the, the precise spot within the book of Amos, but I know he's one who talks about where the Lord will tell the people there, you know, I hate the way you worship. And it's not that he didn't like them to go to worship, that he wanted that. But they were going through the motions of these feasts, all the while thinking that they could do whatever they wanted in their economic dealings and in other matters. And it's striking to see them put back together in the in the proper relation here in Ezekiel, in, as you said, as what it should be and the way that it will be in eternity when the Lord returns and, and makes our sanctification complete. Yeah, and I think this maybe is a good place to talk about this. One of the the reasons that Ezekiel has this vision is not just like, well, one day this is going to happen. And we just sit around twiddling our thumbs until it happens. Like the reason that you're, that Ezekiel has shown this and the reason that he prophesies it and, and it's written down and taught to the people is so that they learn to desire it. Like we want, we actually do want these things to come true. We want um, you know, fair dealings with one another. We want the true worship of the Lord um, to then overflow into all of all of life, and we want the whole land to be holy. Let's move through the rest of the text. We've got about <clears throat> 10 minutes here, and we need to read from verses 18 through the end of the chapter. So Ezekiel continues, Thus says the Lord God, In the first month, on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish, and purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the temple the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and the posts of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance, so you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of the Passover, and for seven days unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. And on the seven days of the festival, he shall provide as a burnt offering to the Lord seven young bulls and seven rams without blemish on each of the seven days, and a male goat daily for a sin offering. And he shall provide as a grain offering an ephah for each bull, an ephah for each ram, and a hin of oil to each ephah. In the seventh month, on the fifteenth day of the month, and for seven days of the feast, he shall make the same provision for sin offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, and for the oil." That's the rest of our text for today. That was Ezekiel 45, verses 18 through 25. So, Pastor Appled, here we do have, again, more conversation about the worship life of the people of God in Ezekiel's vision. Take us into some of the, the features of what this part of chapter 45 has for us. Yeah, you have uh, three major—it sounds like three major festivals that are going to be specified here. Um, there's mention of new moons and Sabbaths, which would be— you know, regularly occurring. A new moon um, goes with each of the months, and then the Sabbath, of course, every seven days. Uh, people are going to be most familiar with that second one that's mentioned here. The Passover is going to be observed in the proper way. Um, 
the last one is not called this by name, but the last mention of this 15th day of the seventh month, I believe this is the Feast of Booths, um, as it's called uh, in Leviticus, and I think also in Numbers. Um, so you can go there, and, and it's interesting that Ezekiel doesn't feel the need to explain all of, you know, why do you um, celebrate Passover and why do you celebrate um, booths? It's just assumed you're going to get it, right? Um, it's, and so what's described here is just that it, it will, in fact, be done. Right. Um, so it would be maybe the equivalent of, you know, celebrate Easter, celebrate Pentecost, celebrate Christmas. And, um, you know, if you say that we understand, OK, Easter, the resurrection of our Lord, Pentecost, the coming of the spirit, Christmas, the birth and nativity of our Lord. Um, so I don't know if you want me to go into detail on any of these things, Tim. I think the the maybe the significant thing is that it is happening. Nobody's forgetting which was is strangely something that kept happening in Israel, right? You get these right. little mentions like in the time of Josiah and he celebrated Passover, which hadn't been done in forever. It's like, how could you not be celebrating Passover? Right. I, I think, you know, and this maybe will come out more in the next chapter. Some of the things that aren't mentioned by Ezekiel maybe are a, a sign of him just taking for granted or the Lord taking for granted. I'm going to mention these things. And as you said, the rest is going to follow, particularly for somebody like Ezekiel, who is a priest by training and is going to know these things. Maybe there's a, I've seen the suggestion and I, I, I think there may be something to it that some of the differences that are here compared to say what's in the books of Moses might be an indication that again, we're starting to move toward the fulfillment in Christ. And so there's some differences, things omitted perhaps, but, but yeah. maybe, for our and you feel free to comment on that, but maybe more for our our purposes, just to to make the point, we've talked a lot about the space, as you said, we've we've seen a lot of the dimensions in the previous chapters. Started to talk about the land, but here we actually get to see that it is put to use. It's not just a building that's going to sit there, but at, sure. to go with what you're saying, things are actually happening here, and that's pretty important. <laughs> yeah, we don't have uh, we don't have God setting up a museum. Right. He, the temple is not meant to be a museum and the church is not a museum either. Um, the beauty of the place is important and, and we want our churches to be architecturally beautiful and, and people should pay attention. They should adorn the house of the Lord with beauty. Um, but the real beauty is the actual um, what happens in the space. And so the, the most beautiful thing that can happen is that God's people have atonement made for them and they come into his presence and they're in communion with him, right? Um, that is what makes the house, the temple. That's what makes a church a holy place, um, is the, the actual means of grace being properly administered. And so that's how the, this little vision here in chapter 45, anyways, I know there's more to come, um, but this section that we're talking about comes to an end with um, not just the space being renovated and properly equipped, but also the, the function, the use of the space is the proper thing. Mm, yeah. Right. And I mean, what a, what a beautiful thing to see the temple of the Lord actually being used. And, and the same would be true for churches today. You know, we, we talked a little bit about church architecture already, and, and you can think about some of the most beautiful churches. I'm sure they're in the United States. I think maybe more of the European churches that are absolutely beautiful and yet are not being used and compare yeah. that to, you know, perhaps uh, somewhere in, in Africa where the architecture is, is nothing to write home about, and yet it's being used in the joy of the Lord. That's, I mean, that's the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision, is is that 
the temple, the church is actually giving out the gifts of God, that the holiness of God is going forth into the world in a beneficial way. That's that's the point. And I, I do think that that's something we shouldn't, you know, amidst all these details, uh, we're gonna, you know, with these measurements and things like, what does that mean? To see that big picture, I think, is, is really important. Now, we got about three minutes, Pastor Apple, to wrap things up. Yeah. Well, we so the um, if you want an example of this, um, think of think of going to the mall and, uh, you know, you walk around the mall and you just see, OK, the space is there. But um, if you if your mall, we have sadly um, our mall here is um, largely there's a lot of empty spaces. And you know what people use the mall for more than shopping now is walking. And uh, imagine the temple, you know, a church that is not a place for preaching and for uh, the administration of the sacraments and the praises of God's people, but instead is just being filled up with, you know, um, let's have a meeting here or there. You know, you have to have meetings. It's, I'm not trying to um, get away from that. But the, the, the purpose of the space, the communion of God with man, um, the Lord among his people to bless them to provide atonement for them um, and to renew them, to give them new life. That's what the temple was always for. And that's what Christ has come to do. And that's what the church continues uh, to do. Pastor David Appold is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 45, verses 1 to 25. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Yes, thanks for having me on, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.